Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi everyone, and welcome to DevRaga Personal Finance, episode 87. And in this episode, I will discuss about investment bonds as a product and investment. Often it comes up in discussion about a good way to save or invest for a particular purpose, um, especially when it comes to children. Um, I have been asked this question in the past, um, and thank you very much for VJ on Facebook for asking me this question. And it has also come from a few colleagues um, at my workplace. Now, for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three aims of this podcast channel. Number one is to educate. Number two is to get empowered about financial literacy. And number three is to be entertained. Just a short disclaimer, remember, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you make after listening to my podcast to your personal advisor, rather than just listening to some random bloke chatting away on a podcast channel. But I think I have a few tips for those of you that want some simple ways to get started. So if you're stuck on what to do, here are these simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, I think there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is to pay yourself first. That is, take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. That is your pay-yourself money, never to be touched until retirement. Step two is invest that money, ideally into something that you understand or want to understand. For me, I invest in stock market via index funds because that's what I understand and that's what I know. Step three is you will have some dividends or income as a result of that investments. So make sure you reinvest those dividends back into the investments. The power of compounding is very real. Step four, make sure that you do this over the long term. Long term is not 7, 10 or even 15 years. I'm talking 10, 20, 30, 40 plus years. That's long term. Step five is automate the investment forever. What does that mean? It means that it just happens automatically in the background. There's less chance for you to make mistakes. There's less chance for you to forget. And there's less chance for you to accidentally spend money. Automation is the key when it comes to long-term financial success. Now, if you did these five steps, you're more likely to have more money than you'll ever need in your retirement. And remember, money is just the tool. It doesn't buy or bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make sure you make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, to make the lives of people around you better. Now, just a recent question that I've been getting uh, from a couple of people, and let's name them anonymous because they don't want to be named. Um, and the question is, what would you do if you had a principal place of residence mortgage 
and also an investment home loan. So you've got two properties. One is the property that you live at and the other one is purely an investment where the investment property is currently being rented out. Would you keep both home loans on a principal and interest uh, mortgage terms or would you make one interest only versus P&I interest, uh, sorry, P&I mortgage for the other one? Now, this depends entirely on your personal situation. Again, I'm not a financial advisor, so take this with a grain of salt. But let me answer this question by explaining this key concept. And that is, the aim of debt servicing is, you always have to pay off your non-deductible debt first as quickly as possible. So this means the interest on these debts, which are not deductible, they are not tax deductible. That's what it means. Then consider paying off your deductible debt afterwards because deductible debt means the interest on that debt is actually tax deductible. So out of your non-deductible debt, of course, consumer debt ranks very high up, but next up is also your principal place of residence. So you can't deduct the interest on the home that you're living in. That is the rule and that is the law in Australia. Now in America, it's slightly different. When you live in a house, you can actually deduct the interest associated with the cost of uh, paying off that mortgage. But in Australia, it's slightly different. So the overseas listeners out there, things work a little bit peculiar to the Australian landscape. So once you understand to do this, then you need to consider whether to keep both the principal residence and the investment home loans as principal and interest mortgage terms. Now this entirely depends on your affordability as well. And I know for that, for peace of mind, some of you may keep both home loans as principal and interest. Um, and certainly, I certainly do. I, when I've had my personal residence, um, always principal interest, all my investment home loans, always principal interest. Um, it's nothing wrong with that. Um, it just gives you a little bit of peace of mind where the principal is also paid off. Um, but of course, you know, once you've once you've paid off your personal mortgage, then uh, yeah, that's why I've sort of had my investment home loans as principal and interest. Whereas ideally, what you'd probably do is you know, make sure that you pay off your non-deductible debt first. And the way to do that is you may want to switch your investment home home loan to an interest-only component so that you can pay off your principal place of residence quicker. Okay. Um, and the other thing I always think when you have investment home loans is I don't take into account the rental income that is potentially going to be coming in um, as part of my borrowing. So I'm very conservative when I borrow money to invest. Uh, again, when I say borrow money to invest, I don't borrow money to invest in the stock market. I tend to avoid to borrow money at all. But when it comes to property, for example, I do understand that you're not able to pay cash sometimes. Um, so my first home that I ever bought, I borrowed money and paid it off very quickly and then paid cash for my second home. And then a couple of investment homes that I have um, I have borrowed money. So try to avoid borrow, borrowing money. But if you need to, then you might have to do it to buy property as an investment. Never, I never borrow money for consumer debt. And I never borrow money to invest in the stock market or margin loans and stuff. That's just too risky in my eye. Nothing wrong with it. If that's your fancy, go ahead and do it. But always uh, take that into account. There's a bit of risk associated with it. Now... The, the mats in terms of the principal place of residence and the investment uh, residence is basically if you make your investment property as interest only, 
then you take the principal amount which you would have paid into that investment property and redirect it to your non-deductible debt. In this case, it'll be the principal place of residence. So to work this out properly, let's use an example, a very hypothetical scenario to make it all very, very completely simple. Let's say your home that you live in, um, you have about $300,000 in debt. And let's say you have an investment property debt, which is also $300,000. Now, I live in Melbourne, very hard to get any property for $300,000 possible, pretty difficult. So again, this is all very hypothetical. If you had to pay principal and interest um, for both of these home loans, it'd be around $1,265 per, per month. And that that's happens over 30 years. And assume there's no fees, just keep it very, very simple. Now, it's completely fine if you wanted to do this. It's better than just having interest-only loans on both of their properties. So again, nothing against for the people that want to do it. But ideally, what you would do is you make the principal uh, place of residence as P&I, so principal and interest, and you make the investment property interest-only. This means the repayments for the principal place of residence will be 1265 and the investment property, because it's only interest-only loan, will be around $750 per month. Now, again, hypothetical. I wish people could buy homes this cheap nowadays in Australia. Um, this is just a dream come true, but just to highlight a point here. Notice in the investment property home loan now that you've saved around $515, which would have gone towards the principal. That's not really a saving. It just means your cash flow improves every month by $515, because your investment home loan is now interest only. But what I would probably do in that situation if I had any home loan debt, is that I wouldn't spend that extra 515 bucks in my pocket, I would then use that amount to pay off my non-deductible principal place of residence home loan. So I would redirect my principal place of residence uh, home loan uh, and, and pay off the 1265, which is what I'm required to pay off, but also pay off an additional $515, which I've now saved from making my investment property just interest only. So the total repayment from my house that I live in becomes $1,780. Now, what you may find is that interest-only home loans for IPs are slightly more expensive when it comes to interest rates, but everything is negotiable. Um, so make sure that you negotiate hard with your banks uh, and you'll find that cash flow is better whichever way you do it, okay? So again, nothing wrong with having a place that you own and live in as principal and interest and the place that you have an investment as principal interest. But if you wanted to be a little bit smart about it, then make sure that you pay off your non-deductible debt first and make sure you leave your deductible debt last to be paid off. Um, so uh, that's probably... a you know, hopefully that's a very simple explanation of what most people should be doing from a mathematical standpoint in terms of trying to pay off your home loan that you're living in, the home that you're living in, as quickly as you possibly can. So that's back to basics. Now, um, if you want to learn more about cash flow, line of credit, debt cycling and uh, profit, all that sort of stuff, flashback to um, episode 52 where I discuss these concepts in more detail. Um, and um, the, other, the other scenario is that $515 that you've saved by not paying off the principal of the investment home loan, and we've discussed a situation where you've taken that money and placed it against the home that you're living in, you could take that $515 
and invest it if you really wanted to invest it into the stock market or invest it um, you know into uh, index funds or whatever you could do it that way if you wanted to um, again slightly risky if you're going to do it for the short term but over the long term 30 40 years you may end up um, doing a lot better but again whatever you do don't spend that extra 515 bucks that's going to be coming into your pocket and I think that's the crux of the matter I think a lot of people will take that money and say oh look I'll probably spend it which is um, which is not a great great strategy now to the main topic what are investment bonds now I got asked a question from a colleague about how to save for children if you invest in a child's name and it's a traditional investment you may end up paying the highest marginal tax rate so investment bonds might be an option which is very tax effective and child friendly so in fact there are many purposes for an investment bond uh, and I'll go into this in more detail um, later in this episode. So what are investment bonds? Well, basically they're known as tax effective or tax paid investment options, especially for those looking at long-term investing. By long-term, I mean in this case, greater than 10 years. And I'll explain why 10 years is the, uh, is the period that's relevant, relevant in this particular case. And it provides some flexibility because you can access the money that you've invested at any time. Now, over the years, investment bonds have actually lost a little bit of favor because um, even though it's a very tax-effective investment option, most Australians, though, the most tax-effective investment options is still superannuation. So I discussed superannuation in episodes 13 and 82, so worthwhile listening to them if you haven't done so already. But the problem with superannuation, obvious problem, is you can't access it at any time without a really good reason. So we've talked about COVID in the past. COVID has been a pretty good reason that some people have had to tap into their super, especially if they're very desperate in terms of, um, you know, really, really, really struggling in terms of lost income and bills adding up and all that sort of stuff. But generally speaking, super is not meant to be accessed prior to your retirement. That's not what it's designed to do. Whereas investment bonds, you can dip into them uh, at times of crisis without having to provide any release details or without having to actually provide any reasoning because it is your money that you've invested. Now, um, the once you've sort of maximized your superannuation um, because you can only contribute 25,000 per year per person in pre-tax income into super, you might want to look at the next best tax effective strategies and that includes investment bonds. And that's why I'm talking about it in this episode. So in short, the benefits of investment bonds are it's tax effective investment vehicle over the long run. It avoids locking away your money for the long term like superannuation does. It's great to save for future needs of children or grandchildren. And it generates some capital growth. And of course, it avoids tax implications of other investments which are not tax effective. So let's dig into the nitty-gritty of investment bonds. So if you took out a managed fund, um, a life insurance policy, or a superannuation account, this mix is kind of like an investment bond. How does it actually work? When investing in an investment bond, your money is pooled with other investors and placed into funds. Now, we've done this before with index funds and other funds. So, you know, that's pretty much a similar sort of concept for investment bonds. The funds can then specialize in whatever types of investments that you want them to specialize in. So it can be Oz shares or international shares. It can be property. It can be fixed interest. It can be cash. It can be whatever investments. So 
fund managers then manage these investment funds and investment bonds just like any other managed funds. So you can switch between the funds and not be liable to having to pay capital gains tax. So that's the other advantage. And if the funds provide any earnings, then these earnings are taxed at a company rate, which is a flat rate of 30%. This is a differentiator when it comes to other types of investments where you might have to pay tax at your marginal tax rate. So in this particular case, this is why it's considered tax effective to some extent, because the taxation that's paid, it's paid at the company level at a flat tax of 30%. So if your marginal tax rate then is less than 30%, then it doesn't make sense to invest in investment bonds because why would you pay 30% tax at the company level when your personal marginal tax rate is less than that? So you need to work out your marginal tax rate before thinking about your investments in investment bonds. Now, um, because the bond issuer is paying the tax at the company tax rate, the investor does not need to declare these earnings in their tax return. Um, and these earnings are not taxable at the hands of the investor. And you might want to get some taxation advice about this. As far as my research and learning, this statement is accurate. If the investment bond is then held for at least 10 years, then any earnings after this period is actually tax-free. I repeat, any earnings after this period is tax-free, and this is called the 10-year rule. I'll go into that a bit more detail, okay? This just seems to be really too good to be true. Um, so basically, if you invest in investment bonds after 10 years, you don't have to pay any tax on any of the earnings forever. Now, it is kind of a bit too good to be true, um, but suppose you want to make a withdrawal before the 10-year period is up, um, then any profits needs to be included in the investor's income, and this profit is then taxed at the level of the investor, i.e. the investor's marginal tax rate, less any 30% company tax offset that's already been paid. Okay, so if the investor withdraws after the 10-year period, then yeah, there is no tax payable on the total profit or earnings. Now you can regularly contribute to the investment bond just like any other investments, okay? So do investment bonds then attract franking credits? Because if you're, you know, if you're basically paying tax at the company tax rate, what if you have franking credits attached to those investments? And the answer is yes, just like any other managed fund and any other owning Oz shares, franking credits are also offered by investment bonds. So if the nominal tax paid is 30%, then franking credits are offset against this tax payable. So your actual tax that you pay um, with the investment bonds may be less than 30%, depending on the type of franking credit and how much you actually get. Is there a catch? Well, there is kind of a catch, and that is called the 125% rule, and it still applies up the initial 10-year period. So what is this rule? The 10-year period basically is intact as long as you don't contribute more than 125% of your previous year's contribution to the investment bond. Now, to understand this concept really detailed, we need to use that particular example. So let's use an example to highlight this rule. Suppose you invest $10,000 in year one. In year two, 
you can invest 125% of that amount, which equates to 12,500. In year three, you can do 125% of this new amount. That equates to $15,625. And in year four, you can invest another 125% of the previous year, which equates to 19,531. If you did this process, this continues, then in your 10th year, you can contribute up to $93,132 of funds into the investment bond. The advantage here is you can continue to invest more than the previous year. Presumably, you know, if you did that, your income also improves over the years to be able to contribute to this. So the investment every year need not be fixed. Now, you don't need to contribute 125% of the previous year, that is the maximum amount that you have to contribute. You can't contribute more than that. If you can't meet that commitment, that's fine. You can contribute a little bit less than 125%. That's completely fine. Now, what happens then if you breach the 125% rule? That is that you contribute more than 125% of the previous year. So let's think about a situation where this may happen. So for example, you might get a large tax refund and you want to take advantage of that and put it into the investment bond and therefore breach that 125% rule. So what happens if you did that? Well, then what happens is the 10-year period starts again at the time of your contribution, which means your ability to seek withdrawals tax-free in the long run is then prolonged, okay? So for example, if you breach the rule uh, of 125% in year three, then it's 10 years after that year three, so the 13th year, that you'll be able to realize the tax-free grains uh, of that investment. So hopefully that hasn't confused a lot of people, and hopefully you now have an understanding of what the 125% rule is when it comes to investment bonds and the 10-year time frame. But is there then a strategy to intentionally breach the 125% rule? Um, and the answer is yes, provided you don't need that money in that 10 years of time. If you're hoping for that money to be reached in that 10 years time because of your child or grandchild, then yeah, the strategy doesn't work. But supposing you're doing it for the very long term, then this strategy might be sufficient. So in scenario one, you'll have year one of $10,000 in investments. Uh, year two of 12,500, 125% more. Year three, max of 15,625. Year four of 19,531, so on and so forth, until you reach the 10th year, where you can invest up to $93,132. That's scenario one. Scenario two works like this, supposing you want to breach that 125% rule. Scenario two is year one, you have a $10,000 that you've invested. Year two is 12,500. Year three, supposing now you have an extra $2,000 to invest, you put it in addition to the 125%. So 125% would have been 15,625. Now you add 2,000 to that. Now you can invest up to 17,625. Year four, $22,031 instead of the previous scenario of $19,531. And by the time the 10th year happens, your limits per year can be increased up to $164,145 compared to had you not paid that extra $2,000 that you had, $93,133. In other words, in the previous example, you had a limit of $93,132 in the 10th year, but now that has increased to $164,145, but the payoff is the 10-year period starts again from year three. You have willingly breached 
the 10-year period, and you've broken that 125% rule. So therefore, the 10-year period starts again from year three. So really, it's year 13 now from the original investment that you get to realize your tax-free uh, advantages as a result of the investment bonds, okay? Now, why does it make sense to breach that 125% rule in year three? Well, going back to the previous example, in year three, notice I said you had an extra $2,000 to invest in that year. Now, you can invest it into a brand new investment fund. So let's say you continue on the whole previous scenario of 10,000 and then 12,500 and then 15,000, etc. And you start a new investment bond at $2,000, okay? This means in year two, you can only invest 125% of the 2,000, which is $2,500. In year three, it's 3125. Year four, it's 3,906, so on and so forth. It doesn't allow you to invest more as the years go on as much as it does if you had breached the 125% rule in the previous original investment bond situation. It just means that the 10-year period starts again if you can weather that. So, once again, the 125% rule exists because, you know, you want to be able to restrict people in investing and investing bonds, but if you don't really care, you can just breach it and keep extending that 10-year period further and further and further down the line. So coming back to the key benefits of investment bonds, it's tax effective, but not as tax effective as superannuation. So unlike superannuation though, you don't need to meet a condition of release. You can release the bond at any time. It has a liquidity benefit. Now refer to episode 84 where I discussed the concept of liquidity. So the liquidity of investment bonds is actually better than superannuation. That's very good. The previous benefit means that you can save for a specific event, weddings, children, grandchildren, so you need to have a future goal in mind. If you don't withdraw from the bond, then you don't need to declare any earnings in your tax return. This is because the fund itself pays the tax, as we discussed earlier, and therefore it's tax effective because they use the corporate tax rate of 30%, so it doesn't get taxed at your marginal tax rate. This is beneficial for high tax bracket individuals. I know a lot of people that are listening to this podcast are high tax bracket individuals, so this may be a good option for you if you've exhausted your superannuation option. Any withdrawals after 10 years uh, period is actually tax-free, so that's fantastic. Uh, and if you've reached your maximum super contributions, this may be an option for the next best tax-effective investment for retirement. You can contribute once-off or a regular contribution, so that's another advantage, provided you meet the yearly 125% maximum contribution rule. And it still has the advantage of frank dividends and franking credits, which reduces the overall tax rate even lower. And most of all, you can switch between your investment options and don't have to realize any capital gains. Whereas if you invest in a particular type of ETF or index fund and then switch between that, then any capital gains has to be realized and you are have to having to pay capital gains tax. Useful for estate planning. So again, for example, if your investment bond contains a life insurance policy, it can be paid out to beneficiaries tax-free, including children. Is it all a rosy picture? And of course, sadly, nothing in investment is 100%. Nothing is rosy. It's not all perfect. So let's look at the disadvantages of investment bonds. Now, it's tax effective only for the high tax bracket candidates. If your tax bracket is less than 30%, it doesn't make any sense to have an investment bond. The money only becomes tax-free after the 10th year. So withdrawals are made in the first eight years. It is included in your income, which means likely automatically you pay the highest marginal tax rate, 
with a tax offset of 30% of tax already paid from within the investment bond. So again, if you, uh, if you want to withdraw it within the first 10 years of investment, it's probably not a great investment. The 125% rule means that if you make extra contributions beyond this, your 10-year period starts again. Now, I've talked about a situation where that can be advantageous for you. Um, that is the period at which after the earnings and capital um, gains um, is tax-free, that tax-free period uh, is extended if you breach the 125% rule. Um, so we all know that making extra contributions then is a big factor in compounding returns over the long term. So having that 125% rule is kind of limiting your ability to make significantly extra contributions in investment bonds without having to keep extending that tax fee period beyond the 10-year period. So that's a bit of a disadvantage. Now, the advantage of investment bonds taxed at company tax rate means that the tax is paid at the fund level. This is good overall. This saves tax. But this all means franking dividends and credits are also received, also apply at the company level and can't be applied to your individual tax situation. So those are the pros and those are the cons of investment bonds. Um, and the other con that I found, and I did some digging around about the cost of investment bonds. It was actually quite difficult to get information about the cost of investment bonds. Whereas if you invest in ETFs or index funds, it's relatively transparent. So I've discussed about cost of investing as a major, major killer when it comes to investment returns over the long run. So if you're interested about that, refer to episode 63 and way back in episode 6. Um, if you haven't listened to the first 10 episodes of this podcast series, you must listen to them. That's pretty much all you need to know, and everything else is basically geeky stuff. So go back to episode 63 and episode 6, um, which talks about fees as a major killer. Um, now, the cost of investment bonds are not usually cheaper than low-cost investments, such as index funds or ETFs. So let's use some examples. I had to do some digging around for this. So you're all wondering what the cost is. Now, I looked at Australian Unity, IOOF Holdings, AMP, Centuria Growth Fund, and Gen Life. They seem to come up as major companies that provide investment bonds as an option. So let's look at the um, cost associated with Australian Unity. Uh, it has a number of lifestyle investment bond options. Uh, the MER ranges from 0.29% to 1.13%. Uh, on top of that, they have other management costs. I don't know what that means, but that's what it says in the PDS, which ranges from 0.14% to 0.26%. And on top of that, there's another flat rate of admin fee of 0.6%, which makes the total estimated cost of owning an investment bond through Australian Unity ranging from 0.89% to 1.81%. Now, I invest through Vanguard Index Funds, and my expense ratio is 0.16%. So this one is 0.89 to 1.81%. So that's pretty expensive. Now compare this to, uh, again, Vanguard or even ETFs and beta shares for ASX 200, which is only 0.07% per annum plus whatever brokerage costs you may have. So still it's cheap. Um, uh, you know, that, 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 that comparison may give you a bit of an idea about how expensive investment bonds can really be. Yes, you are getting a tax advantage later in life. Uh, yes, um, it is relatively secure investment. Uh, like all things in life, read the PDS. I uh, had to really go hunting for that information. It wasn't actually very transparent, which is um, which was interesting. 
Comparing to the second investment uh, uh, bond uh, company, IOOF Holdings, uh, their Wealth Builder Series total cost range from 1.37% to 1.71%. So very similar to Australian Unity. ANP, their Growth Investment Fund, uh, their costs range from 1.05% to 1.31%. Again, not too bad uh, compared to Australian Unity and IOOF. Centuria Growth Fund, 1.5% per annum. That's what the sort of total cost is. And Gen Life is anywhere between 0.8% to 2.19%. That was for their Magellan Fund, I think it was. So again, looking at fees alone, I'm not saying is a great strategy, but it has to, uh, you, you have to pay some attention to it in order for your returns not to evaporate into the wind, so to speak. So I guess then if you're paying such relatively high-ish fees compared to ETFs and index funds, what has been their performance? Um, now, interestingly, I couldn't get much performance data over many, many years, 20, 30, 40 years for some reason. I could only get performance data for over the last five years. Like all things in life, I don't invest for five years, so therefore I don't invest in investment bonds. That is not my investment style. So um, now excluding COVID in the last five years, the returns haven't been too bad, actually. The average across the board for investment bond returns over the last five years, excluding COVID ending 2019, was around 5.4%. That's actually not too bad. Um, compare this to index funds, which has been around 10.9% on average, even accounting for costs, the index funds have done much better. That's double. That's double the actual returns of investment bonds, even accounting for um, costs, okay? So, and even accounting for taxes, uh, the advantages for investment bonds, the stock market still returned better. Again, the volatility of the stock market over five years, you know, is extreme. So if you'd invested in January this year, you know, you would have lost about 10 to 15% of your money today. So again, investment bonds are a little bit more secure when it comes to volatility and provides you with advantages for franking credits and franking dividends, etc. Um, now, of course, again, mentioning these returns over five years, it's a very, very short period of time. Like I said, I don't invest for the short term. So investment bonds um, have some great, great advantages. And I think it's suitable for people who want a bit more security, who are investing for a specific cause, who would like to withdraw the money prior to retirement. That's not my plan. I don't want to touch any of my investments prior to retirement. So I don't invest in investment bonds. Now, if you're new to this podcast channel, everyone knows what I like, and that is investments in index funds, low-cost index funds that just track the market because I believe in buying the haystack and not buying the needle. That's about it for this episode. Thank you very much for VJ for answering the investment, uh, for asking the investment bond question. Um, uh, it's it's a very interesting topic to discuss, particularly for those people that are looking for something for their kids, grandkids, or something in the future. If you have a target in mind in terms of life event, this might be an option you want to look at. Thanks for the questions, likes, and comments, and thank you very much for those messaging me on Facebook that keep me on my toes. Um, and like I said, I don't provide financial advice, but I'm happy to help where I can. Remember to also like the Devraga Facebook page. Shout out to questions and comments and topic suggestions through that. Um, share this channel with family and friends. Um, you can share the Anchor app, uh, castbox.fm. Uh, you can listen to it via Spotify, Google Podcasts, Player FM, and devraga.com directly. So thank you very much for sharing the episodes and the channel to family and friends. And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside and pay yourself first. 
And also remember to reinvest those dividends, reinvestments, and learn about investment bonds for your personal situation. It might actually be a good thing for you. Like always, this is Dev Rucker, Personal Finance, Episode 87. And as always, please, please, please make sure you stay Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.